Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot as she called us to live to a higher standard each day, not satisfied with just a little religion, but instead giving God our best. As this Elizabeth Elliot Gateway to Joy podcast series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who are influenced by Elizabeth Elliot's life and message. Today we continue our extended series on Operation Alka and other events during Elizabeth's time in Ecuador. Today we have two Gateway to Joy programs, Contact with Stone Age People, and one called Spiritual Warfare. Both programs originally aired in January of 1989. You know, as we think about Contact with Stone Age People, we're going to hear Elizabeth speak a little Quechua, and later we'll hear from Jim Elliott himself. It's just under three minutes. It's from a sermon he preached on the resurrection. He spoke directly to those who haven't yet put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now that's later in today's podcast. Let's get started now with our first Gateway to Joy program, Contact with Stone Age People. I've been telling you the story of five American missionaries who attempted to reach a people called Aucas in Ecuador, South America. This happened back in 1956. You remember that their names were Jim, Pete, Ed, Nate, and Raj. I remember not many years ago being at a certain rather prestigious theological seminary, not very far from Boston, where someone was giving a lecture called The Search for a New Theory of Mission. I went eager to find out whether he had discovered any new theory of mission, and if so, just exactly what it might be. And it became dismayingly clear that the man had found no new theories of mission. Maybe I shouldn't say dismayingly, because it might have been more dismaying if he had discovered any. But he didn't have a great deal to say. And at the end of his lecture, there was a question and answer period. And a professor's wife, who was sitting near me, stood up and she said, far as I know, I've never been within 10 yards of a real live missionary. It was all I could do to keep from giving her a small poke in the back. But she said, I never liked the idea that they go all over the world telling everybody that they're all wrong. Well, I don't know what your definition of missionary might be, or if that may describe the image that you have in your mind, but that really isn't the primary purpose of the Christian missionary, to go all over the world telling everybody they're all wrong. It's a simple matter of obedience, because when Jesus was about to leave his disciples, he said to them, full authority in heaven and earth has been committed to me. Go forth, therefore, and make all nations my disciples. Baptize men everywhere in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And be assured I am with you always to the end of time. Jim, Ed, Pete, Nate, and Raj had committed their lives unreservedly and irrevocably to Jesus Christ as Lord and Master. They believed that what God was asking them to do was to be missionaries. In this particular case, to be the first missionaries to go to reach the Alka tribe. 
who had never been touched with the gospel. No one, in fact, had ever gone into Alca territory and come back alive. And so Nate Saint, the pilot, through his own invention, was dropping gifts to these people, sometimes by parachute, and he had a pod under the wing of his plane from which the parachute gift could be released, and sometimes by what he called a bucket drop, whereby he would circle the plane, lower a bucket on a line, which came to rest at the vortex of the cone, and a person could actually take hold of the bucket while the plane was flying. And the first gift drop was made on October 6, 1955. I remember the discussions that we missionary wives had about what we should send these people. We took it for granted that they would be happy to get an aluminum kettle. We assumed that they had no metals. They were Stone Age people and probably would enjoy getting an aluminum kettle. Then we thought of colored buttons and glass beads, rock salt. And so these were the things which we tied up and added ribbon streamers to so that if the gifts did uh, go astray into the jungle, if Nate's aim wasn't as good as he hoped, then they would be able to find it in the underbrush. And this is Nate's description of that first bucket drop. We slowed the plane to 55 miles an hour and held the gifts over the side, the door having been removed at Atahuno, and hooked up the automatic release mechanism. Slowly, we lowered the gift packet until it was well clear of the plane. Then he goes on to give some more technical details about the altimeter and his speed and the reeling out of the line. Then he says, finally the gift appeared to be pretty close to the trees below. Time for the attempt. The wind was making it difficult, and the hills on either side of the stream were covered with tall trees. A couple of times it seemed that we snatched our charge upward just in the nick of time to keep it out of trees bordering the sandbar. Once, I believe, the ribbons dragged across a tree and hung up momentarily. At any rate, that gave us our working elevation. We made about six attempts at this elevation, gradually drifting the prize against the wind until it was over the bar. Then we rolled the turn steeper and held our breath while it lowered toward the earth. It wouldn't be ideal for it to hit the water, and it was heading close, close, closer, plunk. It hit about two or three feet from the water, directly in line with the path to the house. They couldn't miss it, since they probably got their water for cooking right at that spot. Now another problem. I thought I saw our gift move just a little as we began a slow climb, still circling. That raised the question as to whether it was released or dragging on the line. But finally we were sure the line was free, and there was our messenger of goodwill, love, and faith, 2,000 feet below on the sandbar. In a sense, we had delivered the first gospel message by sign language to a people who were a quarter of a mile away vertically, 50 miles horizontally, and continents and wide seas away psychologically. You can imagine the thrill when the bucket landed where it was supposed to land, and the people actually grabbed the bucket and took out what was in it. Then the second drop was made on October 14th, just about a week later. This time it was a machete wrapped up in canvas. And here's Nate's description. The high-riding machete was behaving nicely, Ed was glued to the binoculars. 
All of a sudden, he let out a yell and all but crawled out the open door to get a better look. We were seeing our first Auka. He was running around but not hiding. Pretty soon, there were three of them out in front of their big leaf-covered house. Now we felt sure that they had received our gift of last week and that the idea had caught on in a hurry. If it was half the sport for them that it was for us, their excitement was understandable. After about four circles, we had compensated for the wind, etc., and started letting the gift down. I was no longer worried about their getting it because we felt sure they were already watching the dangling prize. We let on down. At first, it looked as if it would hit the house, but it drifted toward the stream. Splash. Then, quicker than you could bat an eye, another splash. And Alka had dived after the treasure. Minutes later, there must have been a half-dozen or eight of the men on the bank examining the prize. Our hearts were grateful. We had not hoped to see this for perhaps months. Of course, we wonder what they were thinking. Several things seemed evident. They got our first gift. They aren't afraid of us in this type of approach. They are as animated in one way or another about this thing as we are. And from then on, we began to get more and more excited at every possible thing which we could take as a sign that the Alcas were aware of our overtures and that they might, in fact, be looking for us. The Quechua Indians around the station where Ed and Mary Lou McCauley lived reported that they saw Alca footprints in Arahuno. We, of course, could not be sure that they were not Quechua footprints, but the Quechuas were very sure because they seemed to be able to recognize footprints almost as well as you and I would recognize a face. No, they're Alca footprints, they said. It was not by any means incredible that they should be because we knew that we were within maybe two or three days' walk of Alca territory in Arahuno. The Quechuas also insisted that the Alcas had a spy system and they would occasionally come upon places where the branches were broken or the grass was mashed down and they would say, Alcas have been waiting here. But as Nate flew over week by week, taking either Jim, my husband, or Ed McCulley along, they would see increasing signs of excitement and friendship. They were holding the line, taking out the gifts, waving the gifts that they had received the week before, and generally indicating that they had, in fact, accepted the friendly overtures from the men. And so the men began to think very seriously of attempting to reach these people on the ground. Surely that would be the next step. But in the meantime, Jim was chewing the bit. If a friendly contact was made, Jim and I were prepared to leave the work in Shandia for time and go in with our baby, who was then about eight months old, and live with the Alcas. Nate felt that the men should follow the already established course of making regular contacts and that nothing should be done suddenly, but each advance be allowed to soak in before pressing on another. Pete was unsure about whether he should go. Jim had written in his journal, God send me soon to the Alcas. They had actually received a gift in return, a feather headband. Nate decided that four men at least should make up the party rather than Jim and, and me and our daughter Valerie. And then he finally decided that they really needed a fifth. And so it was then that Roger Udarian, the man from Montana, was invited to go. They had made contact with Stone Age people. 
surely God meant for them to proceed to follow up that first contact made from the air to the ground. Gateway to Joy and Contact with Stone Age People, originally aired in 1989. One of the challenges of reaching a Stone Age people would be learning their language. In a Gateway to Joy program we actually featured earlier on the Elizabeth Elliott Gateway to Joy podcast, remember when Elizabeth spoke Quechua? Avioneta Uyarimung. Those are Quechua words. Quechuas are Indians in the eastern jungle of Ecuador, where I used to live. And those words, avioneta uyarimung, mean here comes the airplane. Uh, What would it be like to learn a new language? Ever wondered that? Well, it's time to get to our Gateway to Joy program entitled Spiritual Warfare. Later, we'll hear the voice of Jim Elliott himself with some words for those who have not yet trusted in Jesus. Stay tuned for that. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you this time about spiritual warfare. When I look back at my own experience and the crises of my own spiritual life, I don't think I can recall a single time when a major decision was not followed by a spiritual struggle. We've been talking about five American missionaries who were just on the verge of trying to make face-to-face contact with a group of Stone Age people in the eastern jungle of Ecuador, people called Aucas. Nate felt that it would be wise to have at least four men, and when Pete agreed, then he felt that they should ask yet another one, so that Three men could stay on the beach in their camp each night, and Nate and one other man could fly the plane out so that the plane would not be flooded in case the river should come up or the sand become soft or something dangerous like that. So then he began to think about this man, Raj Udarian, the man from Montana, who had showed such zeal in his attempt to reach the Atshwadas, a group of the Hivero tribe, people who used to shrink human heads, a fearsome tribe that Raj had made contact with. Nate was sure of Roger's capabilities. He saw him as a soldier of Christ, a man capable of great effort, trained and disciplined, as he wrote. He knows the importance of unswerving conformity to the will of his captain. He was a disciplined paratrooper. He gave Uncle Sam his best in that battle, and now he is determined that the Lord Jesus Christ shall not get less than his best. Everything that made him a good soldier has been consecrated to Christ, his new captain. So Ed and Jim, although they hardly knew Roger, working with different Indians in another part of the eastern jungle, had trusted Nate's judgment implicitly. If you think Raj is the man, then we will happily work with Raj, was their decision. And it just happened that Raj was in Shalmeta at the time. He had come out from his station, Makuma, to help build a mission-sponsored hospital. And one day, while he was nailing down sheets of aluminum, Nate came to him, told him about this top-secret operation called Operation Alka, and asked if he would be willing to go along as the fifth man. Would Raj go? Raj agreed immediately. 
And then, as so often happens, when we've made a major decision that involves spiritual things, it was followed by spiritual struggles. When I look back at my own experience and the crises of my own spiritual life, I don't think I can recall a single time when a major decision was not followed by a spiritual struggle. Satan cannot bear for any of us to do the will of God. That is one thing he cannot stand. And as soon as he sees that a man or a woman has made up his mind to believe God and to obey God and to step out and act, he immediately swings into action. Raj began to feel terribly discouraged. Was he accomplishing anything among the Achwaras? If not, how could he even think of going to another tribe? Who did he think he was? Was there any fruit? In the first year or two, he was learning the language, thinking to himself, the fruit will come later. He had learned the language now. Where was the fruit? And what about all that romance that the prospective missionary imagines? The exotic places, the strange customs, the people sitting around waiting for somebody to come and bring them the gospel, the eager, hungry hands reaching up, the empty faces, the lack of joy. You get there, you find out that nobody's waiting for you, nobody's lifting up empty hands, and lack of joy, well, my experience with Indians was that they were among the happiest people I've ever known, seemingly. They laugh a lot, they play, they're peaceful, serene, very easy to get along with people, easy to love. Romance, well, it dissipates very quickly, and there wasn't any left for Raj. It was just plodding, plodding, plodding. The days were the same, it seemed, sharpening the tools, hauling water, cutting wood, trying to make a generator go, giving shots, delivering babies, doing a whole lot of things that really didn't seem to have very much to do with what he thought he had gone there to do. No crises, no mass conversions, not even one or two to whom he could point and say, there is a transformed life. Oh, there were professions. There were people who said, yes, I believe. Yes, I'll take the gospel. Yes, I'm a sinner. I know I need a savior. And they'd come to church. They might listen to the readings of the Bible. They might even pray. But Raj was looking for real fruit, that radical distinction between the believer and the non-believer. The one who at great cost, perhaps, to himself, leaves the godless culture in which he's grown up and takes that hard and costly step of public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. What kind of a difference does it make in your life that you belong to him? Would your neighbor be able to watch your life and know that there was a difference? That's what Raj was hoping for, and that's what Raj was not seeing. He watched, he longed, and his heart began to sicken. There's a passage in Scripture that explains what was going on here. In Ephesians, the sixth chapter, it says, Put on all the armor which God provides, 
so that you may be able to stand firm against the devices of the devil. For our fight is not against human foes, but against cosmic powers, against the authorities and potentates of this dark world, against superhuman forces of evil in the heavens. Do you believe in superhuman forces of evil in the heavens? Do you think there's such a thing as a personal devil? Well, number one, I believe what the Bible says. And number two, my experience corroborates exactly that. Because my experiences with evil have been personal experiences. And so I believe in a personal devil. And the Apostle Paul goes on in this passage to say, Take up, therefore, God's armor. Then you will be able to stand your ground when things are at their worst, to complete every task and still to stand. Stand firm, I say. The superhuman forces of evil, these dark cosmic powers, were fighting against Roger Udarian. I don't have any doubt about that. It wasn't merely the fact that the missionary romance was over with. In Raj's diary, this is what he wrote, I'm about ready to call it quits. The reason? Failure to measure up as a missionary and get next to the people. As far as my heart and aspirations are concerned, the issue is settled. It's a bit difficult to discern just what is the cause of my failure and the forces behind it. Since March, when we left Wambimi, there has been no message from the Lord for us. I just picked up my Bible to share with the same Lord who made me a new creature in England 11 years ago. There was no word of encouragement from him. He had kept us safe wonderfully and met our needs, but the issue is far greater than that. There is no ministry for me among the Hiveros or the Spanish, and I'm not going to try to fool myself. I wouldn't support a missionary such as I know myself to be, and I'm not going to ask anyone else to do that. Three years is long enough to learn a lesson and learn it well. Some people are slow to catch on. It'll be tough on Barb and the children, but I've always been convinced that honesty and sincerity pays. The milk is spilled. I'm not going to cry over it. The cause of Christ and the Hivaria will not suffer for our having been there, but I must be honest and confess that it has not been helped. I don't think it will come as much of a surprise to many and will only be an I told you so. There is no spiritual pressure in the issue, and in fact, very little of emotion or stress, perhaps none. That was the effect of this spiritual attack. Then, later on, it seemed that he was cleansed through the Spirit for the task which lay ahead. Barbara was, had been praying, and she saw the answer to her prayer. She said when the invitation came to go to the Alcas, Raj went with a happy, expectant mind and heart, full of joy. He was cleansed through the Spirit for the task that lay ahead of him. On December 19th, he wrote in his diary, I will die to self. I will begin to ask God to put me in a service of constant circumstances where to live Christ, I must die to self. I will be alive unto God that I may learn to love him with my heart, mind, soul, and body. Just before he left Makuma to join the four in Arahuno, he wrote, 
there is a seeking of honest love drawn from a storm-tossed soul, a seeking for the gain of Christ, to bless the blinded, the beaten, the lost. Those who sought found heavenly love and were filled with joy divine. They walk today with Christ above. And then the last line eluded him, and as he put down his pencil, he said, Barb, I'll finish it when I get home. What is your personal Waterloo? Have you made a decision which immediately has been attacked and you've been convinced that you had made a mistake? You've done something terrible, something that you should never have done. It's going to damage your family, your life. Go back to God's leading in the making of that decision. Realize that if it was in fact his leading, you must not dig up in doubt what you planted in faith. That was the Gateway to Joy broadcast called Spiritual Warfare, originally aired in 1989. Well, we have a few minutes left in today's Elizabeth Elliott Gateway to Joy podcast, and let's actually listen to Jim Elliott as he tells us about the resurrection. He was speaking directly to those who are not followers of Christ. And if you're not a saved man tonight, I want to challenge you with this proof. Here is a prophet, a man by the name of David who lived a millennium before Christ appeared on the face of the earth. And he said that the one who was to appear would not see corruption in his flesh. Yea, his flesh was to go about as though it were tabernacling in hope that he would never see corruption. That he would not be left in Hades. That spoken a thousand years before Christ, becomes exactly fulfilled in the New Testament. And understand, it wasn't something that the people of the day of the day of the Lord Jesus were looking for. Because we find in the 20th chapter of John that when Peter and John had gotten there to the grave of the Lord Jesus, they stooped down, looked in, and believed. But they did not yet know the Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. They didn't know that Scripture yet. But it was true to them ultimately. They weren't looking for it, but it came to them from the Scripture. Peter, therefore, offers to us a great and wonderful truth that the body of Jesus Christ shall never see corruption. And I want to warn you, friend of mine, if you don't know the Jesus of whom I speak tonight, you will one day know him in precisely the same body that Thomas saw him and cried, My Lord and my God, before him, in precisely the same body that issued breath when he breathed upon his disciples, that resurrection body of his, in precisely the same body of which he said, Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bone as ye see me have it. You will behold that body, for every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. You will look upon Jesus Christ, the resurrected man. His body through two thousand years has not seen corruption, and never shall see corruption. His flesh forever grows in hope that God shall sustain the atoms of his being, if so be that a spiritual body consists of atoms shall sustain that body forever. And this, to me, becomes a tremendous proof of the judgment of unbelievers. Those who receive not my Christ by faith one day shall receive him by sight in awful horror and agony. You shall confess before this one whose flesh is uncorrupted through the ages. Yea, as the scripture says of him, these things which thou hast made shall wax old as doth a garment, and thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same. My friend, one day you shall face the same Christ that Peter faced. One day you shall see the same Christ that Paul saw. One day you shall see those same hands which were outstretched over the disciples to pronounce that final all of its blessing. 
One day you, my friend, shall be called upon to face the Son of God, whose eye is as a flame of fire, and before whom there is no stand. You shall be called upon to face him. How will it stand with you then? That was Jim Elliott, an excerpt from one of his messages on the resurrection. Well, it looks as though our Elizabeth Elliott Gateway to Joy podcast is coming to an end. Let me thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, maybe your jogging routine, wherever we found you today. This podcast is presented in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network in Charlotte, and we thank you for joining us today. Well, until next time, may God remind you daily that you are loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are what? Yes, the everlasting arms. Thank you.